Father, we eagerly anticipate that day when our hope will be made real. When we see your Son, we will be glorified and be like Him and bid this old world full of sin, our old bodies full of sin, farewell. Lord, help us hope in this. Help us believe in this. Help us be people who genuinely trust Christ, who believe in Him, and who follow Him all the days of our lives. Lord, that is the only place where we can find our hope. So, Lord, I pray today as we look at Your Word and study what Your own Son, Jesus Christ, said His very last week before His crucifixion, Lord, may we grow in knowledge and faith. May we grow more obedient. Teach us these things, Lord, that we may grow. And for those who don't know Christ, we pray that You'd grant them salvation today. Call them to the truth of Your Son, Jesus Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. Call them to repent and have faith in Him. We ask this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you know, I say this every Sunday. Some of you probably get sick of it, but it's so wonderful to gather and be together, study and worship with you. I think about this all the time, all the Christians who are in places where gathering like this is not, is not possible for various reasons. Other Christians in churches that maybe don't have the fellowship or the joy, maybe aren't committed to Scripture or truth, maybe they're interested in gathering more and more people but not interested in knowing God. And so every time I reflect on this, I just think about what a joy it is to come and gather and be with you guys and study the Word of God. Such an immense privilege. We should never waste this. I'll be leaving and this next week. It will be my last Sunday to preach for a while, and I'm already starting to get homesick. That's how I feel about being here. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 23. You know, getting together to study God's Word still is a joy, even when we're studying passages which are hard, passages that are hard to read, passages that are hard to study, passages that are frankly hard to preach. Matthew 23 is frankly one such passage. Matthew 23 has more in common with an Old Testament latter prophet. And it does with what people might think of in terms of Jesus' ministry. This was Jesus' last public preaching. This is His last public ministry, believe it or not, and He's calling down divine curses upon wicked people. It's most likely the Wednesday before His crucifixion. The next day He will gather His apostles on the Mount of Olives. He will give what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is all about uh, the end times, beginning with His death all the way to the end of actual time. Then they will meet in the upper room. Judas will leave, and then they'll head over to Gethsemane where Jesus would be arrested. But this is Jesus' final message to Israel, His final message to the spiritual religious leaders of Israel. And like I said, this is not a happy message. This is not a you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay message. This is a message of woe. It is a message of cursing. In fact, there are seven woes. If you're counting there, there are seven woes. If you have the old King James, you'll notice there's a, an extra verse in there. As theologians have looked at it, always their desire is to find what is true and original, what is actually the Word of God. And as they looked at that, they noticed that that passage probably wasn't included. There would be eight woes if you look at your King James Version, but there are seven woes, and I agree with what scholars would say today. There are seven woes here. Jesus issues these woes to the people of Israel and specifically to the leadership 
of Israel. So what I've done is to identify four sins or four types of sinners that God in Jesus is cursing here this last day, is pronouncing woe upon them. You could probably come up with a longer list. You could take even each one of those seven and try to break down specifically each one. You could actually reduce the list all the way down to one cursed sinner, one type of sinner. In fact, Jesus names that sinner six times in this passage. In fact, He names it at the beginning of each of the woes, all but one of them. Let's see if we can identify what kind of sinner or overarching sin He's talking about. Let's look at the beginning of each curse. The first woe is verse 13, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Verse 23, woe to you blind scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And finally, verse 29, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Six out of the seven curses here start by mentioning one sin, really the overarching sin, I believe, that would identify these Pharisees and scribes, really all the religious leaders of Israel in that day. What is that sin? It is the sin of hypocrisy. The most fundamental level, these rascals were hypocrites. And we'll see here today, Jesus is zeroing on that particular brand of sin and brand of sinner. We're going to be challenged, I hope, in our own hearts to reject hypocrisy. We all have hypocrisy, right? I've said this in our whole study of this. This is not, Jesus didn't give us this. He didn't preach this so that we would be judgmental towards those whom we think have that sin, but to look at our own heart. It's, yes, for us to show judgment, good judgment in terms of whom we follow, but it's also to call us away from these particular sins. And this is the sin of hypocrisy. Let me read this to you. You can follow along as I read aloud. I'm going to begin in verse 25 and go down to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness or uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. 
Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is the Word of God. There is a pattern throughout the Bible. It begins in the Old Testament, goes all the way to the New Testament, particularly in the life of the Christian church. It is the pattern of leadership. In terms of the church, it began with the apostles leading that early church. They led that first church in Jerusalem. They did this first by teaching, by preaching the word. Peter there at the start, others to follow. Then they led the church in other ways, in doctrine, in organization, even in the church finances. They led the church. And in every church, this pattern is repeated. Godly men who have the holy desire to give people the word of God, they were screened, they were tested, they were proven, and then the congregation would call them to lead. The people of God were supposed to test, they're supposed to approve and affirm their leadership, supposed to hold them accountable, as long as they're leading according to the word, according to truth, and living lives in accordance to this, they were to be affirmed. And then the people were to follow these leaders these affirmed, screened, approved, appointed leaders. It says the congregation dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's Acts chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews says about the elders in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's a verse that every person should memorize, according to us pastors. Paul said because of his own screened, proven leadership of the church, he himself was to be supported financially. In fact, uh, he was to be provided for. He only made two exceptions to that. He told Timothy that some elders, particularly the ones who preach, should be blessed, should be provided with double honor. He told the saints at Philippi this is why they should receive their pastor Epaphroditus with the same kind of honor. All this blessing, all this obedience and submission to the leadership and screening and accountability, all of it with this honor. Now, this is why it's particularly egregious when a spiritual leader falls. That's why it's particularly horrifying when a, a guy in a position such as my own, a position as pastor of a church, a position of spiritual, doctrinal, doctrinal authority, even organizational authority, abuses that role for his own personal gain. If you look at history, even look at the New Testament, it often begins with a deviation from truth. It evolves eventually to questionable morality, lack of accountability. And so we see, even going back before the church, the Old Testament, these spiritual leaders are the ones whom God picks on, whom, the ones whom God points out and calls down woes and curses and judgment. God, in fact, issues a stronger judgment, a stronger condemnation upon these spiritual leaders. God judged the false priests, the false prophets, the false kings. He judged them with vehemence. In the New Testament, He said the false teachers in the church are marked out for eternal damnation. He tells the people, especially the true pastors, the ones who are preaching truth, to bar these kinds of false teachers from the church and to tell their people not to even associate with these false teachers. In fact, one of the tests of a true pastor, one of the tests of an elder is that he consistently 
identifies and rebukes false teaching and false prophets who peddle myths. Paul himself, he had no problem calling out false teachers, even naming them by names. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he mentioned that out of the New Testament. Janus and Jambres out of the Old Testament. He said, any true pastor should, quote, give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it, Titus 1.9. When he was defining for Timothy what preaching was all about, he said, as he defined preaching, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and instruction. Why such hard preaching? Why so much reproof and rebuke? Because, Paul says, these men upset the church. They upset entire families. They cause people to turn away. And so, therefore, they must be silenced, as again is in Titus 1. This aspect of pastoring comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Most people don't know this. Many people don't even want a pastor who would rebuke anybody. They just want a pastor to sort of come in and give you a little therapy session and send you on your way with a smile and make everybody feel better and never say anything negative about anybody or any religion or any teacher whatsoever, just affirming everything. In fact, some people think that's what's required of pastors, that they should just be open to everything. I was written a, a letter one time. A, a guy came and asked me to, uh, he wasn't a member here. I think he used to be a member many, many years ago. But he, he came and said, uh, I want you to be part of a Hawaiian blessing of my house. And I said, I'd be happy to, to pray for you, your family that you would use that house to honor God. But, but the, the Hawaiian blessing tradition, you understand, it has pagan roots. And I'm not going to be a part of that. And he excoriated me. He wrote me a dirty letter, mean, angry, with curse words, and said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. As a preacher, you should be open to all forms of spirituality. And much the opposite of what the Bible says. God feels differently about pastors because of God's attitude towards false teachers and because of God's love for His sheep. He requires preachers to silence and remove false teachers and warn people against them, rebuking these false teachers sharply. Well, we're going to look at that love of Christ for His people, of God for His people next time. Jesus is doing what He's doing, all this rebuke, all these woes, all that fury, all aimed at these false spiritual leaders. He's doing it not just out of a holy hatred for them and for their sin, but also out of His love for the people of Israel. You could see this sermon really as one last chance, one final warning before he is to die, one final call to turn away from the false teaching and turn to the true, to the Messiah himself. That's what this chapter is all about. He calls out the sin. He calls out these sinners, these spiritual religious leaders who've used and abused their positions for, for personal gain. They've abandoned the truth. They've abandoned morality. They've abandoned any accountability from the people of God. And it is out of this, his hatred for their sin and his love for his sheep, that Jesus gives this final message to warn the people away from the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, like I mentioned earlier, you can look at the structure here of this passage. You could perhaps go through it and look at each woe and try to differentiate each woe one to the next, sort of concrete and separate. But I think it's best to sort of group them up a bit to identify uh, broadly, the kind of people God's curses, God curses, and we've identified two so far. 
The first kind of person, if you're taking notes, the first one was the legalists. The spiritual leadership of Israel in that day was known for their legalism. Now, fundamentally, this is a theological issue. They believed that in the end, God is pleased by man and their efforts, really self-righteousness. In reality, this is apart from faith in Christ. In fact, it would be trusting in their own selves and rejecting Christ. And so they put their attention on all these rules. They come up with all types of rules, really not even standards in Scripture, standards that they make up on their own, standards that would make them feel better about themselves but put a burden on others. These are legalists. Rules and ceremonies they devise to make themselves look good and others bad. God also, through Jesus here, cursed the deceivers. That's what we saw last week. These wicked men created a whole system of deceit, ways they could look honest and claim to be honest by technicality, but in the end, they were just as dishonest as anybody, seeking to mislead people, seeking, seeking to deviate from the truth. They performed morally, really as a misdirection. I called it moral misdirection. They, they did moral things as a distraction so that people would affirm all this morality and forget to look a little bit deeper and find out these men were really immoral. They were deceivers. The legalists and deceivers. Today we look at that sin or the, really the breed of sinner that really embodies the scribes and the Pharisees, all the religious leaders of that day, the overarching sin. Jesus mentioned, as I said, six out of seven curses. Whom does God curse in Christ here? The number three, hypocrites. The hypocrites. Now, so that you can see this, there are two sections here. Jesus said similar things in two ways, two illustrations The first in the first section, verses 25 to 28. Then in the second section, 29 to 36, he demonstrated how filthy and how egregious their sin actually is, this sin of hypocrisy. In the first section, with its two illustrations, we see this, A, hypocrisy illustrated. Jesus gives us two word pictures, two illustrations that are pretty easy to understand. The first one's in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, this is pretty easy for us to understand, isn't it? Most of us can understand this. At first reading, you'll understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. It's a cup or a dish, clean on the outside from a distance. It looks pristine. It looks like it belongs right up in your cabinet where all the other clean dishes are. But when you go up and you grab that cup, and this has happened to all of us, maybe the, the dishwasher or maybe yourself, you forgot to really do a good job and you pull that cup down and it's filthy on the inside. And Jesus goes straight to the application. He goes straight to the sin. He doesn't continue on because it's such an easy illustration to understand. He just jumps right into their sin. He says, Inside, you're full of greed. The word is harpage. What's interesting about that word, it's not greed like you and I think of greed. Greed, when we think of greed, we think of sort of covetousness, like wanting stuff and having a, a, a form of, of selfishness, desire, this something inside of us. But the word here, greed, really it's all about plundering or stealing or robbing people of what is theirs, taking by force. It's actually a violent word. 
taking by force what is someone else. And you, you think about what they were doing, right? When we, we talked about Jesus when he cleansed the temple and what was happening with the money changing and the sacrifices and what they were doing. They were taking people's money by force. They were selfish. They had this veneer, they had this exterior of all the holiness and the robes and the tassels and all this beautiful thing, and yet they're just taking people's stuff because they're greedy. The word, therefore, self-indulgence here is actually the negation of the word self-control. If you want a direct translation, it would be something like this, self-controllessness. You guys can't control yourselves. They have no control over their desires. They have a deep appetite for sin. They have a deep appetite for people's things. They have a deep appetite to get in the pocket of people and get their money for themselves. They have no control over the desire to do this. Jesus plainly called out what was inside the Pharisees. They did all their work to clean the exterior of filthy dishes. They looked so pious. They looked so somber. They looked so spiritual. They did all the ceremonies, and yet their own appetite was out of control. Every once in a while, someone comes to us, and they've been caught in some sort of sin. And uh, yeah, sometimes they come, and they're broken, and, and being caught just revealed their own heart to themselves, and they're ready to, to repent, to turn to Christ, to, to carry on with their Christian life and mature. But every once in a while, we get someone, and it seems like their biggest interest is making sure no one thinks badly of them. So to ask, you, this is question, almost early on in the counseling session, they'll ask the question, well, are you, are you guys telling anybody? Are you, I'm just worried that this is, I don't want anybody to know in the church I'm, I'm doing this or struggle with this. I, and, and of course, we always protect people's reputation until they continue to refuse to repent, and that's the point at which we have to bring it to the congregation. But before then, we protect their reputation, we assure them, we'll protect your reputation, we're not going to do anything, we're not going to push you in the wrong way. And yet, there are some people that just seem obsessed what everybody thinks about them. They could care less about their sin. They could care less about repentance. They could care less about walking with Christ. What they're most concerned about is what everybody thinks. Most concerned with the exterior appearance rather than inner purity. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Focus on your heart. Focus on repentance. Focus on doing what's right, on transformation, on humility. Your reputation will follow. The second illustration here is another word picture. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Again, this is pretty easy to follow, but I do want to give you a little context to help you understand what Jesus is referring to. Usually in the Hebrew month of Adar, which would have been right after uh, the spring rains, the people would go around and whitewash their buildings. By whitewash, it means they would take a, a water-soluble paint, a white paint, and they would repaint everything because uh, it being a dry climate, climate, a really desert climate, most of Israel, you could paint something and the rain wouldn't come all year long. It would just stay white all year long and then 
Uh, as the rains come, it would wash off that paint, and then there in the month of Adar, you would repaint, whitewashing your buildings. Of course, some of the buildings would have been tombs, the little mausoleums that they have there in Israel, the tombs where the rock was cut into, like where Jesus was laid, the above-ground sepulchers that you see if you toured Israel, you see there on, uh, near the Valley of Kidron on the Mount of Olives, you see all those, those above-ground sepulchers everywhere. The whole cemetery, the whole graveyard during this month would be whitewashed. It would be made white, and it really would be something to behold, something beautiful. Because of the rains, there would be green grass everywhere, and in the midst of all that green grass, you would see all these white buildings, beautiful little buildings, perfectly painted white, beautiful area. You think about even our own graveyard. It's very similar, right? You go to a graveyard, go over here to Middle Island Mortuary, it's one of the beautiful places on the island. You go, uh, one of the places that I love is you go to this, uh, there's a funeral home on the other, foot of Kalaos, uh, Ko'olaos on the other side of the mountain. You go through, you go to this funeral home, and it's beautiful. There are the mountains, sometimes you see little waterfalls, absolutely beautiful. Everything is pristine, all the grass, all the blades of grass are kept in perfect unison. It looks just absolutely beautiful. But it defies the fact that behind everything is Nothing but death. This is what Jesus is referring to. As beautiful as these places may be, as well kept as these gardens and a fresh coat of paint, maybe even then, then being April, right after uh, what we think of as the month of Adar, right after that, maybe the grass is still green, maybe the, the graves are all still white. As beautiful as these place, places may be, these well kept gardens, these ornate gardens, as beautiful as they were, everyone knew the truth. Just below the dirt or just inside the tomb, just on the other side of the mausoleum door was decaying, dead corpses. What's more rancid? What's more filthy? What's more putrid than a rotting body? Nothing. It's filthy. It's horrible, a rotting carcass. Jesus' imagery is very poignant, isn't it? You know what's behind those doors. You know what's in that grave. Think about all these scribes and Pharisees walking around on that temple mount, and they have these beautiful cloaks and beautiful clothes and the tassels and the phylacteries, and they're walking around with all their religion and all their ritual and all their ceremony. And Jesus says, behind that beautiful picture is a rotting carcass. They're filthy. They're rancid. They're full of death. There's actually some evidence that the people of Jerusalem would do a lot of the whitewashing in order to hide the death from the visitors for Passover. This would have happened right before Passover. And they wanted to hide all the death and decay. It was wrong to touch anything that was dead. You would be made unclean. They certainly want to, don't want to do that during Passover week. And so they would essentially do it all as a facade to hide death from the visitors. They'd whitewash it all, but it was all a facade. Now, that was true for the Pharisees, that was true for the scribes, that was true for the religious leaders and all their followers. It was all a facade. It was fake, beautiful exterior, but it was all deception. On the inside was death. Verse 28, so also you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
These word pictures help us see truth. Jesus gave these two illustrations so we could see the truth of their hearts. Again, it's a warning. It's a warning so that we could see our own hearts. Are, are we hypocrites? Am I a hypocrite? I think all of us would have to say, yeah, in some way, I'm guilty of this. I can't really point my finger at the, at the Pharisees here because I'm guilty of this as well. It's also a, a warning, a warning against false teachers to look and dig and see if they're accountable we can't ultimately see the heart of a person, but we can gather truth, we can understand, we can show good judgment even if we're not judging. We ourselves have our own sin to deal with. So often we find ourselves obsessed with what other people think of us. We hide our filth, our sin, our depravity. And Jesus gives us this hypocrisy in illustration form, filthy dishes, whitewashed tombs. Let's not be like that, and let's not follow spiritual leaders who do that. Well, Jesus doesn't re just remain in the realm of illustration or theory. This hypocrisy is going to be demonstrated, and the ultimate demonstration of their hypocrisy is the fact that they will kill Jesus. They will commit the greatest or worst murder of all time. They will murder the ultimate true prophet, the true priest, the true king, Christ the Messiah. Now, it's not just hypocrisy illustrated. Number two, it's hypocrisy demonstrated. Let's begin in that next section. Jesus says, speaking of tombs, let me make another point about your hypocrisy. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them, shedding the blood of the prophets. Just pause right there. Jesus says, speaking of tombs, here's something that you guys do. I see you actually do your hypocrisy on demonstration. You go around with all the showiness, building up, perhaps taking a part in, in whitewashing these tombs and making them beautiful and adding ornate, beautiful jewels and things, perhaps putting flowers in, decorating these tombs. It's all in the effort to claim that you're godly, to claim that you're with these great prophets. The truth is, you hate the truth that they preached. He says, you build and decorate the tombs of great faithful prophets of the past. You build these monuments of these great Old Testament prophets and faithful men. You build these memorials as if to say, oh, I, I follow Saint so-and-so. He's my mentor. Saint is this. She's my mentor. I follow them. It says, Jesus says, you, you go a step further, you say, if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have joined with our fathers in killing these people. We would have defended them, perhaps even to the death, we would have defended these great prophets. And Jesus calls them for what they are, they're liars. What a lie. You're not at all defenders of the truth. You're not at all defenders of the faith. You join your fathers. You're with them in your hatred of truth. It was a sad truth all throughout the Old Testament, the history of Israel. The sad truth is that most of Israel, for most of the time, lived in rebellion against their God. God sent them a prophet. What did they do? They mocked and killed him. What did the religious leaders do when the prophets came? They mocked them. They killed them. That's what the kings did. That's what the priests did. And this is the parable of the vineyard. We learned this some months ago, the parable of the vineyard. God created Israel, protected them, built a hedge around them to, to protect them. 
assigned them leadership, spiritual leadership, and then sent his servants, his prophets. And when they came, what do the authorities do? What do those leaders do? They killed them and tortured them. Jesus gives them an illustration, or gives them a, a, a little bit of history here. First, there was Abel. We think, verse 35, we think, don't think of Abel often as being a prophet, but what did, he, what did Abel do? What was he killed for? Preaching the truth. Giving truth to someone, his brother. He gave the truth to his brother, and he was killed for it. The first murder was the murder of a preacher, the murder of a prophet. He delivered that truth to Cain. Cain killed him for it. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Jesus says. And then Jesus mentioned the last prophet before John the Baptist, Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Now, just so you know, there are, I think, as I read this week, I think I found there was 20 different, more than 20 different Zacharias in the Bible. I didn't know that. I thought there was just a couple. Zechariah, a very common name. The question is, well, which one is this Zechariah? There was a prophet named Zechariah uh, who was murdered. This one says he was murdered at, at the altar. There was one that was murdered at the temple, stoned at the temple. Probably not that guy because that guy had a dad who had a different name. Jehoiada was his name, and that happened about 800 B.C. I think it's quite possible this is the Zechariah who wrote the book of Zechariah. He didn't tell us the whole story because he wasn't living to tell us the whole story. His dad's name was indeed Berechiah, so it makes sense that Jesus would point to the first prophet and the last prophet, really just giving something that's endemic and all the prophets in between. This is what you do. The first prophet I sent, you killed him. The last prophet I sent, you killed him, and all the ones in between. The people of Israel, led by certain hypocrites from the beginning to the end, killed prophets. This was the habit. Now, there are some exceptions. There are some prophets who lived and survived and did well and people listened, but for the most part, these prophets were hated. I think this gives us a little bit of a pattern that we see in Israel. The prophet would come to them, and at first they would listen and obey the prophets. As time went on, they would simply hear the prophets and hear the truth they were saying and maybe even acknowledge and Perhaps even if sitting in the congregation would say amen to what the prophet was saying, but they would go out and do something different. And the next step is they would just simply put up with the prophets. They would tolerate the prophets. Maybe they were afraid of God. Maybe they're afraid of the prophet. Maybe they knew there was some sort of miraculous ability. And you see this sometimes in prophets when, when they were mocked, God would do something and prove that he was a true prophet and they should not speak against him. And in spite of that, eventually the people would start to resist the prophets. They would perhaps even torture them and beat them. You think about Jeremiah being thrown into a pit. And eventually they would begin to kill the prophets. The fact of the matter is, all human societies, without the grace of God, all human societies eventually get around to killing those who speak truth, beginning with the pre preachers or the prophets of truth. What is true of all societies is true of Israel. We have great affection for the people of Israel. We have a great affection for their story because their story, if we're Christians, their story is our story. We have great affection because God seems to 
be intent on keeping all those promises He made to the people of Israel. But Israelites are no different than anyone else. They listened to the prophets and obeyed them at first, but then just heard them and didn't obey, then began to tolerate them, and then began to resist them and eventually would kill the prophets. Look what Jesus says back up in verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your father's. In other words, just, just do what is in, in your heart. Do what is true to who you are. Do what is true to who your fathers are. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Then on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In other words, you guys, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, come from a long line of truth haters. Just join. Be true to who you really are. Quit trying to whitewash it. Quit trying to wash the exterior. Quit trying to deceive people with all your laws and rules. Jesus aligned them with none other than Satan. He said, you brood of vipers, you're, you're snake. You're like that original snake. And guess what? Your end is the same as Satan. Finish your job. Kill the ultimate prophet and join your father, Satan, in hell. I've read this so many times. It doesn't matter how many times I read this. I'm always a little bit shocked. This is Jesus' last sermon? You'd think he'd give something a little nicer. That's not nice at all. And again, I think it's not just because he hated their sin and hated their deception. I think it's because he loved the people. He's trying to warn the people, don't join these hypocrites. Don't be like these hypocrites. Shocking for us to hear Jesus preach his last public sermon. Here's the divine Jesus speaking. He said, I, did you get that in verse 34? I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Now, by the way, that's not lawyers like we think of. This is men of the book, men who understand the truth of the Bible. Jesus said, I'll send you all these godly men to preach truth to you. And what do you do? Some you kill, some you crucify, some you flog, some you persecute. And finally, at the end, Jesus says, it will come to fruit, the punishment the judgment will come to fruit in this very generation. And we know exactly what happens. They kill Jesus. And a few years later, within 40 years of that happening, there's really no more Israel to speak of. They crucify Him. They arrest Him the very next day and they crucify Him. Now, these are sons of hell, Jesus says, use Jesus' language. They're sons of hell. Their end is the same as Satan. It's an interesting idea, by the way. We don't think of that when we think of people or maybe even think of our own lives in our lost state, right? We kind of think of ourselves positively as we look back at our lostness and, well, I was on a journey. I was seeking, but that's not the way the Bible calls us. Jesus, or Paul says that we're enemies. Jesus says here, sons of hell. not had faith in Christ, if you've not 
obeyed the gospel, repented of your sin, and followed Him, you're at enmity with God. You are a son of hell. Your destruction is the same as these Pharisees. There may be people who attend church. There may be people who do all the right things, but they're just like these hypocrites, these Pharisees. In the end, they have a murderous rejection of truth. I'm sad to report that I see this from time to time in church. A lot of people think as you sit there in the, in the pews or the chairs, you think that uh, you're not being seen, but I can see what happens in these pews. Sometimes people think they're getting away with something, and maybe the people don't around you see you, but I see you. I see all the little talking and all the little sleeping and all the things that happen during the service and all the little stuff, and generally I'm pretty good at ignoring most of it. But I, I, I've noticed this little pattern, and, and I told the staff about this the other day. There's a little pattern that I've noticed, and I, I, it always starts with someone that you can just tell they're not engaged anymore. They're, they're done listening to me. They're done listening to the preacher. Eventually, it turns not just from being distracted, to, but to talking, perhaps even criticizing. And, and I can see, I'll, I'll say something, and then I see this snarl on their face, and they lean over and they tell their spouse, rah, 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 rah. Eventually, they sort of move further and further to the back, and they disappear. I've never known anyone to follow that pattern and go to a church that preaches truth. Those people always end up at a church that avoids the truth, that's easy to go to, it's inoffensive. I hate to say it, but it sounds kind of like the, the Israelites. It's at the beginning, it's okay, I receive and I accept, but then a little bit of resistance and not going to do it, then rejection and eventually just hatred and they're done. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I understand, understand this, Paul tells young Timothy, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, money, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. He goes on, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. What's young Timothy supposed to do? If this is happening in his church, if this is happening in society, and people just don't like to hear truth, is, what is he supposed to do? Is he supposed to change the truth? Supposed to figure out how to appeal to people, to refashion his preaching to somewhere that's more acceptable, learn the philosophies that are prominent in the world, and somehow adopt those into his preaching, into his doctrine? No, Paul says, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The temptation is great, temptation of hypocrisy. We can all look at our own lives and identify. Even I myself, I, I try to do this every time I preach a sermon is, Look at my own sin first. Deal with God with my own sin. If I can feel like that I can stand up and have the audacity to preach against a sin that I'm actively committing. So as I studied this, I just thought, how am I a hypocrite? Where am I a hypocrite? Where am I putting on 
some other kind of personality, some kind of fake way of who I am, pretending something that I'm not, hiding sin. Where am I hiding sin? Where am I cloaking myself? Test your heart. Is there a true abiding love for God, a true abiding love for His Word? Is there a hatred for sin? Is there a love for what God has said in His Word? Is there a passion about the truth of God's Word? Maybe you're realizing today there's not, but you want there to be. Maybe you realize for the first time you've been a hypocrite all along. You've never been a true Christian, a true follower of Christ. You've got the title, got your name on the list, but you know, and God knows, that you're a hypocrite. Have faith in Christ. Repent of that sin. He'll save you. And all of us, all of us, even believers, even those of us who have followed Christ, all of us see the hypocrisy of our own lives, and we need to repent of this and continue to follow Christ, abandon our sin. We need to shun those false teachers and all their hypocrisy and their fake ways follow after Christ alone. Well, let's pray that God gives us the grace to do just this. Father, we do pray that you'd bless us in our effort to be genuine, to be authentic, to be real. We know that you look at our hearts. You know the truth. You know the truth more than we know the truth. Sometimes we deceive ourselves. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, our hearts to our own sin, open our minds to our own condition. It's especially true for those who don't know Christ. Open their hearts and minds to the fact that they're not a true believer. But all of us, Lord, help us see the sin of our lives. Help us to repent. Help us to follow after Christ. Help us not be like these wicked leaders or rebellious Israel. Help us to follow after Christ alone. Give us the grace to do this. We are no different than any of these sinners. We're guilty of all these things and more. That's why we come to you confessing our sin, trusting that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from this transgression. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand with me for a benediction. Now may we go remembering that the Lord looks on our hearts, not on our outward appearance. So may we live our lives with authenticity genuinely seeking all that is good and right and lovely as those who represent the Lord whom we love. Amen. Amen.